You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. He fitted me with a blood pressure cuff and then started in with the electrodes. He had a lot of electrodes, and he was going to use them all. That much was clear. Each one went in over a smear of conductive jelly that came out of a disposable packet, like the ketchup packets you get at McDonald's. These were emblazoned with German writing and an unfamiliar logo. And that was when I started puckering and unpuckering my anus. Yeah, you heard right. Here's the thing about lie detectors. They work by measuring signs of nervousness, like increases in pulse and respiration and sweatiness. The theory is that people get more nervous when they're lying, and that the nervousness can be measured by a gadget. This doesn't work so well. There are plenty of cool customers who are capable of lying without any outward signs of anxiety, because they're not feeling any anxiety. That's pretty much the definition of a sociopath, in fact. Someone who doesn't have any reaction to a lie. So, lie detectors work great, except when it comes to the most dangerous liars in the world. But there are plenty of people who start off nervous. Say, people are nervous because they're taking a lie detector test, on which depends their job or their freedom. Or someone like me, who's been kidnapped by a couple of private mercenaries who threaten to take him to their hideout if he doesn't cooperate. But sometimes, lie detectors can tell the difference between normal nervousness and lying nervousness, which is why it's useful to inject a few little extra signs of anxiety into the process. There are lots of ways to do this. Supposedly, spies used to keep a thumbtack in their shoe that they could wiggle their toes against to make their nervous systems do the Charleston at just the right moment to make their calm state seem pretty damn nervous. So when they told a lie, any additional nervousness would be swamped by the crazy, parasympathetic nervous system jitterbug their bodies were jangling through. Thumbtacks in your shoe are overkill, though. They're fine for super macho super spies for whom a punctured toe is a badge of honor. But if you ever need to beat a polygraph, just pucker up. Your butt, that is. Squeezing and releasing your butthole recruits many major muscle and nerve groups, gets a lot of blood flowing, and makes you look like you're at least as nervous as a liar when all you're doing are some rhythmic bum squeezes. As a side bonus, if you do it enough, you will have buns of steel. That's great. That's actually the part I would have had you read. Awesome. Yeah, I read it to to school groups. They love the word anus. (laughs) I imagine so. Cory Doctorow is a blogger for BoingBoing.net and an activist who has worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's the author of books including Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, Overclocked and Makers, Content, a Collection of Essays, Novels for Young Adults that include Little Brother, For the Win, and Pirate Cinema. With Charles Strauss, he wrote The Rapture of the Nerds. His latest novel is a sequel to Little Brother, Homeland. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Thank you. Homeland is, as a sequel, surprisingly new territory for you because I don't think you've written a sequel before. That's right. No, I haven't. I mean, I've written like short stories that are linked in some way, but I've never really written a sequel before. And I always thought, you know, the exciting part for me about, about writing is discovering these new worlds and people that are kind of lurking in my subconscious. You, you know, you, you, you write the book and then you discover what the book was when you're, when you're done and you, you go, oh my goodness, how, was that inside of me? Um, 
And so I always thought a sequel would be like, you know, recovering old ground that you'd miss some of those surprises. And what I found instead when I re when I wrote Homeland, when I revisited those characters, was that it was really like meeting up with, you know, a group of old high school chums who, against all odds, remained really tight friends for the last 20 years and who are happy as anything to welcome you back into their number. And it was great. It was really, really nice doing it. And I think my next book is going to be a sequel to Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. Well, we'll look forward to that. I thought that as a sequel, you did a fabulous job of connecting the two, of giving the reader who had just picked up Homeland after how many ever years, hence of Little Brother, without having reread or you know committed Little Brother to memory, enough to just really get immediately into the world, enjoy it, and then bring back the connections. That's a very difficult task. There's different ways you can do that. I know there, Justin Cronin had literally a biblical scroll like Star Wars scroll at the beginning of his sequel, and that worked. And other people will uh, kind of like work hints in. Um, but I think what you do is I, it's very organic. You never really say, oh, this is reminding you of, of what happened in Little Brother. Talk about doing that. Did that just grow out of the narrative that you wrote? Yeah, it did. You know, Joe Walton, who's a great science fiction and fantasy writer, um, has this useful term she calls incluing. And this is a thing that science fiction writers do and fantasy writers do when we write. What we do is we, we have this imaginary world, and you don't want to sit down and write sort of the, your Tolkien re reading listeners will know of the Silmarillion, which is this stupendously dull book that Tolkien wrote in which he sets out all of the kind of groundwork for the, for the world. You don't want to have to open your book with the Silmarillion that explains your world and all the people in it and all the places and the circumstances that gave rise to it. And so instead what you do is you drop hints through the book of the world that, that your characters are in so that the reader... Can, can take these little clues that you're giving them and piece them together into a kind of coherent story. And that's one of the things I think that makes reading science fiction a lot of fun is they're also kind of a puzzle you solve. Like, what is the contrafactual here? And by approaching the sequel as kind of a standalone novel whose setup was all the stuff that happened to, in Little Brother and then including all of that stuff the way that you would if there hadn't been a prequel, right? If there hadn't been an earlier volume, just this was all stuff that was, you know, in my head that was the the history of these characters, and I was dropping these hints to kind of set up that world. That's that's how I kind of handled it in, in Homeland. So it, it you can read it on its own, and basically all that backstory stuff, all those callouts to the earlier volume, are instead just winks and nods from the writer to the reader to help the writer the reader kind of piece together what what world she's in. Well, this is really interesting. So what you've done is to use the world-building tool in your science fiction toolkit to, in a sense, rebuild the world of Little Brother as the backstory to Homeland, within yeah. Homeland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if you've read Little Brother, then Homeland, then all that stuff is, is just... Um, all that stuff is kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say in-joke because that's a bit pejorative, but like a shared a shared frame of reference between the, the reader and the writer. If you haven't read Little Brother, all that stuff is just world building. One of the things I think that this book does remarkably well is to engage readers in the act of reading. And I think this is really important. You use this as uh, plot points, as a way to kind of draw us into the narrative and 
you make the reader do a little work in in ways that are fun. And I think that that's really critical given that this is a book aimed at young adults, at people who are right now as they pick up your books making the decision whether or not they want reading to be a part of their life for the rest of their life. Well, sure. I mean, I think that one of the the things that young adult science fiction has historically done at its best is kind of um, drape a, 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 an arm around your shoulder, not quite a fatherly arm, but maybe the arm of a of a beloved uncle who's a bit a bit wild, who says, you know, kid, I'm going to tell you some stuff about how the world works. And, you know, we've all had those people in our lives and they're not right about everything. And one of the things that you do when you grow up is you figure out of, of all that kind of cozy advice you've gotten, which bits of it actually still apply. But there's something really intimate and and satisfying about getting that kind of, uh, of, of information from someone who's been around the block and who isn't necessarily um, constrained by, by having to be your dad or your mom and, and not, not showing you the face of who they were and, and uh, not showing you the face of their fallibility and, uh, and maybe, you know, someone who's willing to tell you some hard truths about the world that maybe your mom and dad have wanted to shelter you from. Well, also, too, yeah, and you do kind of the reverse. You get the reader involved by having the characters say stuff that's not true. And the reader says, no, 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 that's not true. And as soon as you get the reader saying that, they're really engaged and mm-hmm. connected to the character in the narrative in a way that I think is essential to get people inspired by and and really uh, involved in the world you're creating. There's a, a writer called Stephen Bruce, who's a marvelous fantasy writer. He's written some science fiction, too. And and he once said, um, telling someone the, that you think that they've written a bad book is like telling them that they've got an ugly kid. And, and you know, what he means by that is, you know, you, by the time, if you're a civilian reading a book that's, that's shown up in a bookstore, not someone reading a manuscript, but if you're someone who's, who's reading a book that's shown up in a bookstore, that book's done. The writer made that book as good as she could and saying, I don't like the book. Well, there's not much she can do at that point in the same way that you've done everything you can to make your kid as beautiful as he can be. And, you know, telling you the, telling the parents of the kid's ugly isn't going to help anything. But I, I make an exception for young people because I and I do a lot of talks to school groups. So this tour is mostly, um, you know, if you look at the tour schedule, you'll see that I'm in a different city every night talking. But what you can't see is that every day I'm speaking to anywhere between two and ten school groups. And um, a lot of those times, those kids will want to come up to you and talk in a kind of excited, sometimes spittle-flecked way about the stuff that they've read in your books and the things they didn't like about it and the things they did like about it. And they sometimes emphasize the things they didn't like about it. And I and I make an exception for them when they do that. I don't think that's being rude. I think that's someone who's reading to figure out how the world works and someone who has found something that has stuck in their craw about how you say the world works and who wants to have it out with you. And being taken that seriously when, when, you know, honestly, most fiction is just things to kind of help you while away the long hours between birth and death, right? Being taken that seriously by someone is an honor and a privilege and a responsibility. And I'll happily talk with kids all day long about that. Uh, as a writer, when you're putting together this narrative, do you, like, look for those moments? Do they flow from the tip of your pen? Uh, do you, uh, when you're, uh, like, architecting the plot, of this book, do you think ahead, okay, I want to be putting this in here. I'm going to plant this seed here so we can have the discussion with this reader over here. 
Not entirely. I mean, a lot of it's very intuitive for me that I don't, I don't, I'm not an intricate plotter. What I tend to do is have some set pieces I know I want to accomplish. Um, and then to get from one set piece to the other, I follow a really simple heuristic, which is that if you have an intelligent character who's uh, got a problem that she's trying to solve intelligently, but failing to solve through no fault of her own, and so things are getting worse, um, which means that she has a new problem to solve, the reader will always keep turning the page, right? That's the, that's the kind of monotonic upratcheting of tension that makes people want to keep reading. And so you can use that as a way to get from A to B, any, any waypoint to any other waypoint. And while you're exploring those kind of iterative try-fail loops, you, you end up equipping your character with a bunch of stuff um, that that she or he acquires through the course of the adventure, um, uh, messages to deliver, um, uh, gadgets and gizmos, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, responsibilities and um, uh, duties and so on. And what those do is they inform the subsequent try-fail sequences, um, and they're what kind of add all the richness to the story. Uh, one of the things that I loved about this book is you begin with a, a, a nice long scene at, at Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And Burning Man, which to us has some of these connotations of this really radical kind of departure from our civilization and, and very different and edgy to the characters, just seems like this kind of sweet party. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's actually one of the tensions at Burning Man when you go to Burning Man. There is this, there. it's not so much a tension as a kind of... Um, difference between the um, uh, people who are older for whom Burning Man is this very, very counterculture event. And then there's a lot of people who are in their early 20s who are there to just, and they're, you know, you could kind of divide it into like ravers and hippies almost. You know, they're the people who are just there to dance with um, with EL Wire and the people who are there as this part of a larger counterculture scene. And it's not that clean a break, right? And there are burners hitting their radios at this moment going, no, it's nothing like that at all because, of course, everyone's experience of Burning Man is their own. But... Um, it's there. There is a, a there are a group of people for whom Burning Man is way more party oriented than the people who are there for you know building art cars. You know they're the people who are there because they want to ride on the art cars dancing to dubstep, and then they're the people who are there because they want to build art cars. And sometimes they're the same people, but a lot of the time they are. The previous book was set in a day after tomorrow setting. And this is the day after the day after tomorrow. But between the time you wrote the last book and now there have been a few day after tomorrows. Mm-hmm. And I think you handle the um, telescoping, the snaky road from one book to the other that has to kind of take some detours through reality and then come back to where uh, Homeland begins uh, very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I thought with Homeland that the challenge would be to write a a story about a disaster that has no obvious focus, right? That, you know, I think that um, when there's a terrorist attack and a Patriot Act, that there's something that everybody can point to and say, these are the changes in our society. But when instead there are a series of shadowy, difficult to understand um, maneuvers and negotiations that result in um, near defaults of states and the federal government, uh, austerity imposed all around the world with with um, increased foreclosures everywhere, foreclosure mills running under under new rules or rules that are newly in, uh, newly interpreted that allow them to take people's houses away it, with a kind of breathtaking speed that we've never seen before. That that's 
that's more like a malaise than a disaster. And understanding that a malaise is just a disaster spread out over time and that a disaster is just concentrated malaise is the kind of challenge that I wanted to set. I didn't want to make a gloomy book. I wanted a book that was tight and full of tension like the first one that, that, that had ticking bombs in it. And that wasn't about kind of the long gray period of the new depression. Um, so trying to get at the punctuated moments of the malaise and, to, and, and show how those are individually as important, you know, when you add them up as any bridge blowing up or any building being knocked down by airplanes was, um, was the challenge I set in the book. Well, this sounds a little bit like a, a variation, and I think Burning Man is that too, on uh, William Gibson's statement that the future has arrived, it's just not distributed evenly. Yeah. And and your, your, uh, first off, I, one of the things I thought was that Burning Man is a perfect example of that. It's a big place where, you know, the future gets concentrated and, you know, shot into the desert and then swept away every year. But also, too, that your description of the difference between the malaise and the disasters is, to a certain extent, just difficulty in focusing on something specific. That's right. I mean, I think that when you're anxious about something that's very diffused, you end up in this kind of crisis of attention. Like, what is it that you pay attention to? Where is it that where's the leverage point that will shift things the most? And sometimes um, when things are very diffused, it's hard to tell uh, whether or not they're related. So, you know, in the, uh, in the early days of the environmental movement, um, there were people who cared about whales and people who cared about spotted owls and people who cared about trees and people who cared about the ozone layer. But no one had coined the term ecology yet. And so all of those were separate issues. And I think that if you were someone who was worried about this stuff, you might have felt like you were being bombarded by a thousand different struggles that each of them had their own, you know, valences and characteristics. The coining of the term ecology and the gathering in of the ecology movement, I think, united thematically all of those things in a way that, in retrospect, seems so obvious, but at the time was very radical. And scholars like James Boyle have argued that when we talk about information politics, you have people who worry about censorship and people who worry about surveillance and people who worry about free software and people who worry about mashups and people who worry about all these different things, but that altogether they form a kind of information ecology movement. And it won't be until that, that, that broader consciousness of information ecology is more widespread that uh, we'll, we'll be able to see that people who worry about free and open source software have a lot of common cause with people who worry about access to pharmaceuticals, that these are, um, in fact, part of the same information ecology question. And, you know, when you were talking about the ecology question, one of the books that, for me at least, really brought that home and focused it was Dune. It was mm. a science fiction novel where the entire plot of the novel, the entire all the characters revolved around this idea that everything was connected on this desert planet. And Herbert had simplified it down to there was just this one ecology, there's the economy, there were the worms, there were the there were the, the politics. Everything was connected together. Yeah, I mean there are people who say that science fiction is a predictive literature, and I think that its track record as a predictive literature is very poor. Usually people who who cite successes of science fiction out of prediction um, are doing that thing where you fire a shotgun into the side of the barn and then see where the where the holes have clustered most, and then you draw a target around it with a bullseye where the holes are, <laughs> and you say, look at that. Look at that. We hit the bullseye. Look at how many hit the bullseye. But I think that what science fiction is very good at is predicting the present. I think science fiction um, uh, is, a, is a great way of teasing out the wider implications of 
technology and technological changes that are ubiquitous, but again, so diffused that it's hard to put your finger on what's happening to them. And I, and I liken it to what a doctor does when she swabs the back of your throat and then takes this unknown thing that's growing there and leaves it in a Petri dish, this artificial world for a weekend. And, you know, she comes back on Monday and then almost with a naked eye, she can look at that Petri dish and tell you what's going on. And I think that a science fiction writer can just tease out a single technological element of the contemporary world and then grow an artificial world, a kind of world in a bottle around it, as though the totalizing force was that one thing. You know, in the real world, we don't live in an era of drones or railroads or cable TV or the internet. We live in a world where lots of different technologies are all of them remaking the world. But if you tease out just one element and build a world in a bottle where that element is the totalizing force of social change, then it's not a great prediction of where the world is going, but it is a way to see those diffused effects in contemporary society um, and to have them called to your attention by, by having this contrafactual. We get to see Marcus's family and follow up on Marcus's family in this book. And I think that's one of the interesting uh, aspects of, you know, the way you took us, uh, took a, turn through reality and then brought that reality back into the book. And I'd like you to talk about creating their situation and uh, looking you know, at San, uh, contemporary San Francisco and seeing it. Uh, the book feels like it's set in the here and now. Mm. Well, you know, the, without giving away too many spoilers, I think this is all in the first chapter. I mean, they're, they're broke. They've lost their jobs. They, they've had to sell their car. Um, you know, Marcus notices that they've uh, that they've let their gym memberships lapse because they quote prefer walking, but what he works out is they can't afford to go to the gym anymore, and um, they are trying uh, with with decreasing success to piece a living together, and they're um, in some sense a casualty of the um, of the finance economy uh, and its triumph over the real economy. That there's there's something you know monstrously broken when the spreadsheets say that the, the firms and factories that produce the goods that we want are have no value, even though there are people who want to continue working there and there are people who want to buy the fruits of those factory, that if, you, if, if, there, if, the, if the financial economy can't figure out how to keep the factory running and keep the people who want to buy the goods of the factory uh, solvent, then the finance side is not doing its job. I mean, where you have some potential supply and potential demand, finance should be the bridge to those. Um, and so they're a casualty of that. But they're also a casualty of a question that we are increasingly um, having to confront, which is how do you equitably distribute the fruits of higher productivity as a result of automation? So um, we've heard a lot, for example, about firms that have found that they can reduce the labor inputs in their manufactured goods to the point where the labor inputs are a small piece of the overall cost of the good. And at that point, it makes sense to bring that, um, that manufacturing back to America because whether you're paying $3 an hour or $30 an hour for the labor makes almost no difference to the final price of the good because the, the labor is the smallest piece of it because most of it's made by robots. Um, and that's pretty cool, right? We are repatriating jobs from the Pacific Rim, and that's pretty exciting. But we're not repatriating a lot of jobs from the Pacific Rim. Instead, what we're doing is we are we're following Kevin Kelly's uh, robotics curve, which is um, no robot could do my job, no robot could do my job as well as I can. This robot can do my job as well as I can, but I need to catch all the exceptions that it isn't smart enough to deal with. This robot can do my job as well as I can, but it needs me around to fix it when it breaks. Um, this robot can do my job as well as I can. And then why would anyone want to do that job? That's a robot job. 
right? And that's that's such a, a nice, um, uh, uh, you know, summary of what happens with automation. And it, it's great when we automate things because higher productivity means greater access to um, uh, uh, material goods. You know, I like that we live in an era where everyone can afford shoes and toilets and so on. Um, but when the fruits of that higher productivity aren't equitably distributed, when they're when they're entirely accrue to capital and never to labor, then what you end up with is an increasingly rich group of robot owners and an increasingly poor group of people who are supposed to somehow figure out how to afford the things that the robot owners are making. And um, that's that's as broken as a world where the spreadsheet says the factory, no one wants the things from the factory, and the spreadsheet says the people who want the things from the factory shouldn't have any money, and yet you do have the, the potential making of, a, of an economy there. And, um, and that's, that's something that I think we're still working out what to do about. I mean, you know, we, we, I love increased productivity through automation, but I think we haven't yet figured out what we do to make sure that we don't leave people behind. Uh, civilization as a machine for boiling the human frog. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, you know, this is this is Luddism at its core, right? The Luddites objected to automation in uh, the textile industry because what they saw was that the amount of labor that you had to put into textiles went down radically. And what that meant was that you, uh, on the one hand, the cost of, of textiles crashed. That was great because it meant that everybody could afford clothes. But on the other hand, it meant that the um, amount of retained earnings went way up. And that instead of those retained earnings being distributed to those workers in the form of a dividend that let them work for shorter hours on shorter days while continuing to pay a living wage, what happened was most of them were fired. The rest of them continued to work very long hours and their bosses kept the all the dividend. And, you know, this is what the Luddites objected to. This is why they smashed the looms. Um, and, you know, they, they're, there needs to be some accommodation. We need to come up with some way. I mean, even... You know, um, uh, union busting goons like Henry Ford believe that if you didn't pay your workers enough money to buy the goods that you were manufacturing, that you would be cutting your own throat, that you would end up not being able to have um, uh, a consumer base that could afford the goods that you were manufacturing and you would actually slow down your production. You know, China, um, a lot of its growth now is coming from higher wages in China which has created a new class of Chinese consumers. So, you know, China is now internally exporting its goods. You know, the South China manufactures the goods and Chinese consumers across the country buy them. And that's going to be a huge part of their growth in the coming years, especially since we can't afford to buy their stuff anymore. And they've just announced a whole new program to up the pay all across China. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as we talk about this book and while it's, it certainly has uh, many aspects of the science fiction genre, I think, too, it, it's part of a, a, a new genre that's appearing that's uh, what I would call economic fiction, hmm. fiction that's driven by uh, speculation about economics, where economics, where the economy, where uh, the, the money that people earn is really the central driving core of, hmm. of what they're going to do. I just talked to a woman, Jojo Moyes, who had this book, uh, Me Before You, where uh, it, uh, one of the prime things we hear about is how this English middle-class family has had to tighten their belts. The father's lost his job, can't get a new job. The daughter has to go out and look for work. And I think that these kind of themes are becoming a lot more common in fiction. Well, you know, economics is not necessarily the study of money. It's the study of human behavior. It's, it's how people make decisions, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so there are there are, there is the economics of um, you know how uh, uh, groceries are allocated within your house, right? And the the groceries in your house are not allocated by markets; they're allocated by by uh, economic forces that are non-market. And um, uh, I think that science fiction has often considered itself concerned itself with theories of decision making um, and theories of of how people um, get along in a in a world. I mean, you have books like Damon Knight's A for Anything, um, where Damon imagined a world where where someone makes a machine that can make uh, copies of anything you give it, including itself. And so um, uh, very soon, everybody has a machine that can make copies of anything. And then um, he cuts to 500 years later when all of those machines have been um, have been accumulated by warlords who keep everybody else in chattel slavery. And that's a, I mean, I, I think it's a profoundly wrong economic book in terms of what you get when you get abundance. But it's an economic book um, from at its core, right? This is this is a theory about what happens in situations of abundance. Uh, there's a, a great short story I read many years ago title and author of which escaped me, but it had a similar plot where they created something called plasticine, mm -hmm. and they could, uh, out of which they could create anything they wanted, and it ended with the, uh, in a similar way, 500 years later, but it's no longer the Earth and the Moon. The, the Earth has been so used up by all the plasticine, they're now twin planets. That sounds like a Rudy Rucker story. <laughs> it sounds great. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Paul Krugman um, credits the Foundation novels with turning him into an economist. Hmm. Now, uh, it, one of the things that drives the story in this book are a lot of mystery thriller elements. And uh, at the core of some of those mystery thriller elements are student debt. And I think this is a really interesting. Uh, you have some uh, a great riff on student debt in this book. So student debt is the new subprime. You, you have these loan originators in the subprime world. They were they were um, you know the second coming of the of the uh, junk bond salesmen. You had these boiler rooms in Orange County, and they were originating mortgages that were then taken off their hands by by banks that could underwrite them, and then immediately fob them off in the financial system. So essentially, you were like paying past the debt around. You you had people who was who were incentivized to make loans that they knew couldn't be paid back because they didn't have to carry the loans on their books. And we have a similar situation now where you have universities that can originate loans to students that are then taken off of their books by the government, which then financializes them. And so uh, the universities are incentivized to raise the cost of tuition because they can loan you as much money as you need to borrow. And the more money they charge you, the more money they can loan you and the more money they get in their coffers. And then they're not on the hook if you don't repay. And so you, you have these um, uh, essentially bond traders and derivatives traders who are building markets off the back of all of this debt. And so they want lots of loans to be written too. And then to make it a perfect storm of awfulness, you add in two other facts. One is that um, student debt is a very special kind of debt. Uh, it's the only debt in this country that um, will visit you all the way to the grave. It's the only debt that you can't escape from bankruptcy. And it's the only debt that can be taken out of your social security check. Uh, no other debts can be collected that way. And um, it's also, uh, we've, we've had 50 years now of continuous uh, pressure to get more and more people through the post-secondary education system on the grounds that it's the only path to a good career. So everybody has been convinced that you have to go to university and get a degree. And of course, that's self-fulfilling because if everybody has a bachelor's degree, then suddenly a bachelor's degree is the minimum requirement for everybody. And, and so everybody needs a bachelor's degree. You can't ever get out from your debt. 
and the universities can charge anything they want for tuition and loan you as much as you need to, to pay that tuition. And the more they loan you, uh, the richer they get and the more raw material there is for crazy exotic derivatives trading that's totally opaque and is is headed for the second crash of the economy. And that's just like, it's 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 like subprime, but you can't walk away from your house, right? It's subprime with debt that you can't walk away from and that it's not just people saying, oh, well, you need a house because that's the American dream. It's people saying you need a university degree because otherwise you're economic roadkill, which is an even more compelling reason to go out and borrow a lot of money. You do a lot of uh, really fun things with this book with uh, kind of explainers, mm -hmm. and it's a great way. You do in some science fiction books, these can seem to be like places where the plot comes to a grinding halt. But in your books, it's like where you're just take off running and can like hear, feel your heels spinning in the air like the roadrunner or something. Well, you know, I'm influenced a lot in that book and in, in, in both of these books and in my other two young adult novels by a Scott Westerfeld novel called Peeps. And uh, Scott read a book called Parasite Rex and a couple of other books on parasitology and was inspired to write a book about vampires that approached it from a parasit parasitological perspective and tried to cast vampires in a, in, in as um, uh, consistent with some theory of parasitology. It's a really, it's a really fun book. And he interleaves the chapters with explainers about parasitology. And it's an amazing way to learn more about the subject. And the two feed each other. And the more you learn factually about how parasitology works, the deeper your understanding of the plot is. And the two go back and forth. And, and the other thing about an interesting explainer is that it um, is a, uh, it's a great thing to stick after a cliffhanger because it prolongs the moment. It's, it's like this, this thing where it's like, wow, that stop. I really want to find out what happens. But wait, that's kind of interesting. Oh, that really is interesting. Wow. No, wait, I really want to find out. What... No, that's really interesting. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's what happened, right? It's, the, it's, this, it's this great way to just kind of drag out the, the, the peak in those dramatic peaks before you get to the climax. Uh, this book, uh, you let your coffee flag fly. Yeah. <laughs> and give us a lot of coffee tech. Uh, and Tell us a little bit about your current favorite method and what, what you're doing and how you get by and coffee, how coffee works with you in your writing process and as a, as a <laughs> drug and as, a, as something else. I believe that the best cup of coffee is the coffee that you can make or, or find that um, without having to disrupt your life too much. So there's lots of things you can do to make a very, very good cup of coffee, but they often involve... Um, uh, going way out of your way. And so when I'm on a book tour, which I'm on now, I, I, I can't make the very, very best cup of coffee. So what I'm interested in is what's the best cup of coffee I can make in the seven minutes I have before I have to rush out of the hotel in the morning um, using things that you can find or bring to a hotel room in your suitcase. Uh, and so I start with pretty good beans. Uh, right now I've got a bag of Square Mile uh, uh, Sweet Shop Espresso, which is great. And while I'm here, I'll probably pick up some Intelligence here or some Stumptown. And um, I have a little hand grinder, a little Japanese hand grinder, uh, and I have an AeroPress, which is, for my money, the, the best way in terms of cost, benefit, and time and expertise to make a good cup of coffee. Uh, and it's just a little plastic cylinder with a piston that goes in. Um, and uh, I bring a stinger around, which is, um, the, the, people who've been in prison know what they are. They're, it's the coil from an electric kettle with a plug on the other end. And most of the developed world, you can't buy them anymore because they're they're um, 
really dangerous. They're sometimes called bucket heaters because you can stick them in a bucket of water and boil the bucket of water. Uh, and um, I get mine on eBay from some guy in the Ukraine. And uh, uh, you plug it into the wall, you stick it into some receptacle full of water, and the water heats up. So if you're ever in a hotel room that doesn't have a Mr. Coffee or doesn't have a, a kettle, you can always make hot water, which is great. Um, I learned the hard way that once you've heated up the water, you need to unplug the stinger before you set it down. Because if you set it down not in the water, it just gets hotter and hotter. So I had one that exploded and showered a hotel room in Berlin with white-hot shrapnel at one point which was a bit disturbing. And I, I emerged miraculously unscathed. Um, and so that's how I make hot coffee. And then I also make cold coffee. I make um, hotel room uh, uh, cold brew. And cold brew is a beautiful way to make coffee. You, you, you uh, immerse ground coffee in cold water overnight in a fridge, ideally, in an airtight container. And then you strain it and you drink it cold. And so it's like an iced coffee and because you never heat it up, you're extracting a lot of very volatile acids that would otherwise be boiled off once you heated it up. And that you get a lot of like chocolatey, caramelly, very aromatic notes in the coffee. And what you don't extract are the very bitter acids, which come out when you heat up the, the water. So you end up with a very, very, very strong tasting cup of coffee that has no bitterness. It's terrific. And I, uh, after a lot of different experiments, the way that I make this in a hotel mini bar is I grind some coffee up and I put it in a breast milk bag because breast milk bags stand up in the fridge and they double seal and they don't leach any plastic flavor. So I, And they also have a pour spout. So I put it in a breast milk bag with water in the mini bar fridge overnight. And then in the morning, I open it up and put it uh, usually in the AeroPress because you can just put, put, force it through the AeroPress and that'll filter it out. But you can also pour it through a coffee filter or, you know, uh, um, I've even used washcloths like the, the hotel room washcloth as a filter. Um, anything works. And then you just drink it cold and it's delicious. But it, you have to be careful because it's so cold and so smooth, you can drink a lot of it, but it's really caffeinated. Uh, and so if you don't watch your dosing, you can end up with, with just terrible jitters. <laughs> In the homeland, you have a, a lot of really great plot points. Uh, and one of my favorites involves a lie detector scene. Mm -hmm. And... and uh, so I'd like you to talk about uh, just crafting this book that is uh, both really engaging intellectually and just as a ripping yarn. You have to kind of go back and forth between those two kind of nodes. Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of that is uh, a, a lot of what helps me do that is is being a blogger. Um, you know, as I wander around the world, I happen upon little fragments that seem like they're part of something bigger, like the fact that lie detector tests can be beat if you clench your anus rhythmically while you're taking them. And um, that's the kind of thing that you get sent when you edit a website like Boing Boing. And writing that up for public consumption then um, kind of acts as a mnemonic for you. It helps you remember it later, kind of puts it in a memory palace. And so uh, when I sat down to write the book, there were a lot of these things that just started bubbling up out of my subconscious because I'd, I'd previously encountered them and they seemed like the kind of thing that you could stick in that would make the book go well and so I had a little file of prompts and one of the things I would do as I was writing is I would just sort of alt tab over to the file of prompts periodically and go oh yeah anus flexing <laughs> in this book and in uh, Rapture of the Nerds which I want to talk a bit about um, one of the features that makes it really fun to read are great sentences you write a lot of great sentences in there. Um, there are stuff that's just really fun to read. And if I can get to this here, that for at one point 
uh, you say cops and robbers use all all the same screwdrivers. And there's so many great sentences like that that you just say, wow, let me read that again because that's just so smart and so good. Oh, well, thank you. You know, a lot of that has to do with with giving a lot of public talks about this stuff, too. And and so, you know, you get to try out a lot of the material. Uh, and uh, and so if you if you do it a lot, then then you polish it up and you figure out exactly um, what works. And stand up doctor That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, the uh, Rapture of the Nerds is a is a science fiction novel you co-wrote with with Charlie Strauss. And this is a really interesting novel. I really enjoyed it. And it's just such a feast of language. Um, it, it's like, it's like a, a 350-page piece of poetry almost in many mm. ways. Uh, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, the how you collaborated with Charlie on this, how you got – and um, writing this piece and just this idea of this kind of uh, it's a science fiction farce almost because mm. it has this feel of it's so crazy and loopy and fun. Well, so the book started off as as a pair of novellas, uh, the first one called Jury Service and the second called Appeals Court. And I wrote them both while I was uh, – well, the first one while I was living here in San Francisco, just just up the road, in fact. And um, For Argosy magazine. No, the first one was for was it? Uh, Sci-Fi.com, I think. Yeah, Sci-Fi.com. Okay. The second one was in Argosy magazine. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I um, – uh, Charlie and I had corresponded. We'd never met. And he said, do you want to collaborate on something? Yeah, sure, why not? So he sent me the first, like, 500 words that he'd written of something that he hadn't know where to go with. And uh, I added, like, another 500 words and sent it back to him. And and basically took the approach of trying to extend what he'd done. I rewrote what he'd done, extended it, but also tried to leave it in a place where he would have to jump through a lot of hoops to get to the next 500 words. So it was a bit of a dare. And, um, and also tried to be even weirder than he had been. And so that was that that set the tone. We went back and forth with this novella, each of us trying to put the other in an impossible to get out of situation, and each of us trying to be weirder than the other one had been, and each of us rewriting what the last one had done. So it was it was overwritten over and over and over again to the point where the, there's a lot of times where I go back and I I I can't tell you who wrote which sentence. Um That and, too has a lot of great sentences, I have yeah. to say. Um Tell us a little bit about creating that world. It's such a great world. And and as I say, it reminds me of kind of uh, some of the, the most fun Stanislaw Lem stuff he wrote where he where it was just so weird. Well, I mean, it, it came out of that that process of each of us trying to outweird the other. Um, I, I think that uh, um, we what we started off with, the kind of the germ of it was to was in the observation that uh, the singularity, this idea that someday we'll be able to upload our brains into computers and then um, we will, you know, sort of depopulate the earth as we all go and upload our brains into computers and cease to exist as, as meat people, was a corollary of the rapture, that someday all the virtuous people will go to heaven and leave nothing behind but the sinners. And, um, you know, there was this very popular series of novels called the Left Behind Novels, and they were um, uh, independently published evangelical Christian fiction that was uh, that were adventure novels about the lives of the sinners left behind on earth after all the virtuous people had been swept up in the rapture and taken to heaven. And I, what we set out to do was write the inverse of that, a novel about what happens when the earth is depopulated by all of the the rational, the scientific, the uh, the you know the um, 
the, the secular and all that are left behind are the refuseniks, the deep greens and the religious people who for whom the idea of leaving their bodies behind is is indistinguishable from death. Uh, and and about their adventures on the depopulated earth where where, you know, there the rapture has come, but it only took the um, the atheists. One of the things that you do in this book and in the homeland is you address the idea of God. In in Homeland, you take about two and a half pages to to to, to check that atheist of foxholes box. Right. Off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I I was raised by atheists and am an atheist. Um, and uh, I I it wasn't a huge um, deal for a lot of my life. Um, and has become more of a deal lately. It seems like um, I find myself in more contexts where the fact that other people believe and I don't is a source of friction or tension. Partly, I think, because I live in the United Kingdom now, where there's an established state religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the uh, the Queen is the head of the Church of England, and the Church of England is the official Church of Britain, and it is official government policy to encourage people to be religious. There is no separation of church and state in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, um, students, it, mandatorily, every student has to have a religious education course to graduate from school. And uh, this makes British atheists bonkers. And so I find myself in a different kind of atheist milieu than I'm accustomed to, one where, where you know, so I grew up being an atheist in a, in, a, in a time and place where being an atheist was largely unremarkable and didn't, didn't disadvantage you in any way, and people were just sort of cool with it and it wasn't a big deal. And now being an atheist is a line drawn in the sand, especially in the United Kingdom. And my daughter, having just started school, I'm a bit anxious about the fact that she's she's going to have mandatory religious education and has already had in kindergarten, um, you know, came back from kindergarten singing songs about Jesus at, at Christmas, you know, and, and uh, asking me who the baby Jesus was and and where he fit into our household. Uh, as a parent, it must be kind of fun for you to write these young adult books. Yeah, although my daughter is not quite old enough to be reading young adult mm-hmm. fiction. She's just turned five. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But I have written a picture book as well uh, that, will, that will my we see agents it? have taken out. Well, if someone buys it, we will. <laughs> uh, maybe if they don't, we will too. Although a, a picture book without any pictures because the publisher gets the artist in is, well, maybe it would be a fun Creative Commons release or something. But, but in any event... Uh, yeah, no, being a writer, well, and, and telling stories is really fun with a kid. Uh, and Posey and I tell stories a lot. Uh, um, and, and it's one of the surefire ways for me to get her to, uh, you know, kind of cooperate in times when she's feeling a bit stroppy is to tell her a story. It always calms her down. In uh, Homeland, one of the things you do pick up on is there's quite a bit of politics in, in Homeland. Well, capital P politics, like like electoral politics. Yes, yeah. that's what it's all about in, in a sense. So tell us a little bit about uh, putting that in a book and turning it into a plot as opposed to a, a lecture. Well, so, yeah, what 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 it isn't, what, what there isn't, I hope, or not much of, is stuff about which politics you should believe in, but a lot of stuff about how politics should be conducted. Um, the idea that, that um, in an in a in a an honest republic, a well-functioning republic, what you should have are lawmakers who may differ in their philosophical out- outlook, but who nevertheless ground their decisions in evidence as filtered through their philosophical outlook to produce the best outcome they can for the voters who elected them. 
And what we have instead is a situation where it's a bit of a red queen's race, where in order to get elected, you have to raise more money than the other people. In order to stay in office, you have to continue to raise ever larger sums of money. And so the primary job of lawmakers once elected is to start raising money for their next election campaign and the next and the next. And what this means is that increasingly very important policy issues are being decided in an evidentiary vacuum uh, where where evidence is replaced by corporatism, by, by, by uh, commercial... Uh, commercial kind of biased non-facts, nonsense that is proffered on the floor of the House and in the Senate as factual material. And, and, you know, a good example of that would be SOPA, uh, the the proposed copyright law that died last year um, as a result of, of, uh, you know, very good activist moves, people who really were smart about how they use the Internet to organize. But, you know, um, the, the people who proposed SOPA uh, among other things, they said, well, we will make it, uh, we will create a world in which people who believe that there's a website out there that infringes on their copyright can force all the internet service providers to, um, to make it hard for people to visit that website by messing up the domain name service. Domain name service is the thing that converts the name of a website like www.google.com into one of those, those IP addresses that, that you can see that are three, there are four clumps of three numbers that are very hard for a human being to remember. And it's kind of like a phone book, right? You've got, but it's in reverse. You don't look up a name and get a number. You you, no, 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 in the same order. So you look up a name and you get a number, right? And then that number is how you address it. And what they said essentially is that... Um, all the ISPs in America could be forced to zero out the phone numbers of these websites that people didn't like. And then it would be a felony to try and provide any service that defeated that. And um, whether or not you feel that censorship is valid, a lot of people pointed out that this DNS blocking is what repressive regimes do in order to stop people from getting access to unfettered news. And that there are many people in America who pursue projects like the Tor Project that are aimed at um, getting around this kind of DNS blocking in order to help people gain access to information. In fact, a number of them are funded by the State Department. And that when you criminalize uh, fixing broken DNS, you criminalize all those people who attempt to, to um, uh, help people in repressive regimes get unfettered access to the internet. And they also pointed out that uh, one of the things that crooks do to um, to defraud people is to mess up DNS. So you you think you're at your bank's website, but the, actually the DNS has been tinkered with. So you're at a website that looks just like your bank's into which you are fooled into entering your password. And then the person who's fooled you can take that password, enter it into your real banking site and clean out your bank account. And they said this is this is this dramatically lowers the security of Americans and of people around the world. And the senators and the congressmen who are pushing for SOPA and PIPA just denied it. They just said it's not true. And it's true, right? I mean, this like it's not this is not debatable, right? Like fixing DNS security is a thing that everybody who cares about internet security knows we have to fix. Right? This is this is like it's 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 as it's as true as gravity. When you look at the people who are on the scientific Science well, and Technology Committee, you might they might deny the that gravity's true as well. Well, <laughs> I guess I guess that's possible. But but I mean the 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 point being though that if you looked at the people who were denying this thing that was clearly factually true, about which there was there is a almost universal consensus, they'd all taken a lot of money from companies that would re- realize some short term benefit from this not being true. And so that's the soul of corporatism, right? Where you have thing facts and evidence 
that uh, are not really disputable or controversial and widely understood to be true, and yet legislators act as though they are mere opinion and that they can be ignored um, in the service of some legislative goal. Uh, and in so doing, they end up terribly wounding uh, our competitiveness, our civil liberties, and our ongoing ability to function as a republic. And this is this is a, a, a very dangerous past that we've come to. And so, you know, when I was writing Homeland, I knew that one of the things I wanted to, to have as a kind of thought experiment was an internet-driven political campaign, election campaign, that um, used the internet as a substitute for major donors as a way to bring out votes and as a way to get someone elected. Because, of course, if you can get elected without major donors, then you don't have to be beholden to major donors as you, as you uh, run through your course in, in, in government, in legislature. And so I wrote to various people who'd worked on kind of next generation campaigns, the Dean campaign and so on, and got their feedback on how to do this. And one of the people I wrote to was a, a very clever young man who's uh, regrettably been in the news a lot lately named Aaron Swartz. And I said, you know, can you tell me how you would run one of these? Because he was one of the people who'd worked on the SOPA fight and had des helped design, along with groups like Electronic Frontier Foundation and Public Knowledge and Fight for the Future, had helped design some next generation political campaigning tools that had really changed the course of history. And an hour later, he fired back a perfectly outlined, you know, essentially technical specification for what he called a vote generating machine that would help politicians generate votes by holding principled positions and recruiting people from uh, their, their constituencies to help recruit more people using the internet as a force multiplier so that you could get elected without a major donor. And, and it was so polished and ready that it was, I, I almost pasted it word for word into the book, except for at the very end he wrote, I've got to go now because I've got to go build this. <laughs> and you know the last thing he, uh, the last code he checked in uh, on an open source project he was working on before he killed himself was code on a project that was clearly related to that stuff he, he helped write for Homeland. So, um, he you know, I did an afterword for the book too. And he wrote an afterword as well. Very, it's, it's beautiful in, in, in retrospect with knowing what we know. It's Yeah. So Little Brother had two great afterwords, one by Huan Bunny Huang, who broke mm -hmm. the Xbox, and one by Bruce Schneier, a very uh, well-known and well-respected security expert. And I knew I wanted that again for Homeland. And so I asked Jacob Applebaum, who's a uh, San Franciscan, who uh, um, uh, works for on the Tor project and also on WikiLeaks, to write one. And I, wrote, and I, I asked Aaron to write the other. And I said, write me a letter to a kid like you, but who's like 14 years old today, and tell her what she can do. Tell her why she should have hope. And Aaron wrote this beautiful afterward uh, that explained what happened with SOPA and talked about the wider lessons for a new kind of activism. Um, and, you know, very sadly um, ended it with, uh, you know, let me know if I can help and his email address, um, which, you know, in, again, as you say, in retrospect, is just um, shattering. And uh, I've talked to his family about it, and you know they're gonna if they if if any email comes in on that address, we're gonna they're gonna forward it to me, and I'm gonna find someone to answer it because I I, I want kids who are inspired by what Aaron did and what he wrote to not just get a bounce message when when that comes up. You you say that every wave of, of technology has transformed politics, and not always for the better. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to give some examples of both. Oh, dear. Um, well, um, 
let me think about that for a minute. Um, Television, for example, or... Well, that, yeah, so a great example was TV. And the, the, this is one that every media theorist has their, knows the watershed moment for, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the Nixon-Kennedy debates, when mm-hmm. suddenly the way that you appeared in front of a camera uh, was critical to your electability. Sweaty lip. Yeah, the sweaty lip. And, you know, um, Neil Postman writes about this rather a lot. He talks about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which were carried on for hours and were very nuanced and very deep. Although I, I recently... Um, there was a there was an anniversary of the debates, and, and uh, BBC Audio put out uh, an audio book of the Lincoln Douglas debates, and I went and re-listened to them because I'd I'd skimmed them before, I hadn't read them through, and although they are very long, there I think that Postman overstated the extent to which they were nuanced intellectual arguments. There's a lot of just straight up like ad hominem and appeals to emotion in those speeches. They're just long. They're you know, but he contrasted that with Reagan Dukakis, where Reagan the Reagan Dukakis debates had to be structured to fit between commercial breaks, um, and so the you know the medium has its constraints and it changes the way that we debate. Now, of course, the internet has changed the way we debate again. For one thing, um, it's possible to really geek out on issues that are important to you. But for another, it's very possible for disinformation to spread and for people to construct little echo chambers. Uh, That said, I think that the echo chamber nature of the internet is overstated. The actual literature on what people who um, spend a lot of time on the internet do when when they try to find out information about subjects that matter to them suggests that they, that if you get uh, most of your news from the internet, you are far more likely to look at opposing viewpoints than you are if you get most of your news from the newspaper. And it's really easy to understand that when you start thinking, well, in the real world, I would never buy the New York Post, the Daily Mail, the Mirror, uh, the Toronto Sun, all these kind of right-wing papers, tabloid papers, Um, because my point of view and their point of view diverges wildly. But on the internet, people often link to those articles. Um, Generally, in in the areas where I trawl, they generally go, can you believe they publish this? But if someone, if you were to come up to me on the street and say, the Daily Mail has published an article saying celery causes cancer, and the Daily Mail for for Americans is a British newspaper that... um, has for the last 25 years pursued a project to divide the entire world into things that cause cancer and cure cancer. Uh, and sometimes things appear on both lists. Um, it, you know, if you came out to me and said, the Daily Mail claims that celery causes cancer, I'd just roll my eyes. But if you sent me an email with a link, I'd probably click it. So I uh, I and other people like me for whom the internet is the first protocol for, for news and opinion are way more likely to go out and find opinion that diverges radically from our own than people in the real world because you you couldn't pay me enough to be seen in public with a copy of the Daily Mail. You know, when I see people with copies of the Daily Mail, I, I, I'm like, I always check to see if their shoes are done up because I find it hard to believe that you can tie a bow if you're the kind of person who's actually entertained by the Daily Mail. I've been speaking with Cory Doctorow. His new novel is Homeland. Thank you for joining me, Cory. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.